Welcome to another episode of Positively Deviant Emergency Medicine. I'm Brad Gordon, and I was super excited to interview Mary Carr. Mary just finished her career in clinical emergency medicine. Most of her practice was at Regents Hospital, but she didn't start there. She started her training as an emergency medicine resident in Michigan and completed it at Regents. Over that time, she served her patients and the system in many ways. She was the key physician liaison with the trauma program for many years. She's been a core member of the residency since the beginning. She developed a new and highly regarded sexual assault nurse examiner program at Regions that now has multiple practice locations in the East Metro area of the Twin Cities. Not satisfied there, Mary applied for and is awarded a grant through the Bush Foundation. She developed her own fellowship in clinical forensic medicine and turned that into a forensic medicine consulting service for police and prosecutors in criminal law. In this role, she could help the criminal system interpret findings on people who are still living as compared to those who have died, who are often represented by medical examiners. This interview was done in May of 2018, just prior to Mary's retirement. I feel very fortunate to have caught Mary at the closeout of her amazing and enduring career in emergency medicine. She has seen it all, and she shares just a bit of her wisdom in this episode. I had way too much fun talking with her, and we went beyond 90 minutes, so I expect you'll be breaking this one up over multiple listening sessions. Let's just get into it. So, Thank you for spending some time with me today. Yes, Absolutely. In the past, I, I really like to start with just trying to learn a little bit more about how um, how you either start your shift or how you got into emergency medicine. And I think as you are approaching um, your retirement from regions, uh, I want to get into how you got into emergency medicine um, because you've been here quite a while. Yes, I have. So actually, I uh, when I finished medical school, I got into a residency in internal medicine and did that. But it was during that residency, during a rotation in the emergency department at Henry Ford Hospital, that uh, I realized that was what I really loved. And so um, I applied because back in those days, you had to do a flex year, first year. So my internal medicine supplanted that. And then I went into emergency medicine right after I finished internal medicine. And was there any particular aspect or case or something that drove you to make that change? Uh, no, but I think that as I think back on my life, um, uh, personally, my father was a type 1 diabetic. My mother was always very anxious about his medical condition to the point that it caused a lot of anxiety in the household. So um, I felt so much better feeling comfortable with crisis situations and that kind of thing, having knowledge about it. And so I decided to go into something where I would learn it, feel comfortable with it, mm. instead of feeling this anxiety of no control, not knowing what's going on, and just the general anxiety in the household. And furthermore, I did find that when I did internal medicine clinics, seeing the same patients back with the same ongoing issues that they weren't really doing anything about, yeah. I thought, how am I going to stand doing this? Now, that was a little naive because actually in the emergency room, <laughs> that never happens. sometimes we see the same patients back with the same problems. But um, 
in any event, that was sort of what it was based on many years ago when I got into this. Were your parents in medicine? No, no, we're not. And and so you pretty much, did you have any sort of science before you went into, like, what drew you into the medical field? Was it something that um, was just about being with people or being in science or anything in particular you remember? No, uh, you know, this was a long time ago. I know. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, my undergrad degree was in physiology. And okay. I had thought that uh, if I didn't get into medical school at the time, I'd probably go into some kind of research yeah. in something along those okay. lines. So I th- I've asked from a personal note because my parents are both like elementary school teachers. And um, mm-hmm. and so I I don't meet lots of people, at least I don't ask their history a lot, but that came... A lot of people in medicine had some kind of connection to medicine as they were growing up. Yes. Um, no, I guess ours was more personal with a chronic illness that back in those days was not particularly easy to control. No. Uh, insulin hadn't been around forever, and certainly there were no glucometers or things like that. And um, so it was more of a personal involvement sure. with medicine rather than yeah. uh, uh, somebody being in the oh, field of it. To hear. Do you, um, so in your training days, how many, um, like how many women were in your class? Were you? I was it. You were it. I was the only (laughs) woman. We had a residency class of eight of us. I was the only woman. And what, like if you were to look before and after you, like classes that were, that were sort of cohorts while you were there as a resident, were you also the only woman or were there other women in other classes like a year or two ahead of you or behind you? Yes. Now, again, we're talking about my um, emergency medicine yes. residency because the internal medicine had more sure, women sure. in it. Yeah, and it medicine. was a larger residency. But uh, the emergency medicine residency, there were women before me Okay, and there were women after me. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then um, how did you end up at Regions or Ramsey? Right. Back in that day, it was St. Paul Ramsey Medical Center. But um, it was actually, I didn't start here. I uh, went to Milwaukee first and was at Medical College of Wisconsin working after I finished my residency. And then we came here more for my husband at the time, his Uh work. Okay. And then, um, and you've been here since and through a lot of changes here uh, between the ownership of which was a while ago and then the residency. Is that something that you were thinking about? Cause at, um, were you involved in teaching at, in Milwaukee? Yes, I was. Uh-huh. Yeah. They, uh, they had a emergency medicine residency right. there. The difference there was that that residency was the head of the residency back then was a surgeon, Yeah, which was not atypical for programs. Right. It wasn't the case at the, at Henry Ford, we had an emergency medicine head, but there it was a surgeon. Yeah. Um, but we had a residency there. Okay. And then, um, so did you come here knowing that there was development of a residency happening? No, there was no talk okay. of a residency here. Uh, there was actually only one residency in the Twin Cities. Yeah. Um, uh, and that was Hennepin County. Right. Uh, and I did an interview there was very, very interested in that program, was offered a position. But at the time I was pregnant and wanted to start off as part-time, uh, they were hiring only full-time. full-time. So um, I started off as part-time yeah, here. Here. Mm-hmm. And then um, at some point it became clear, like, hey, maybe this would be a good place for a program and that development happened. I, I Right. That uh, I'm sure that probably took about... <laughs> 
10, 10 years, somewhere upwards of yeah. 10 years after I got here that yeah. that uh, got in the works. But even, and before that, we had a, how many PAs were working here? We was, did have PAs. They started after I started, but not long after right. that we had our first uh, couple of PAs on board. Mm-hmm. So that was much earlier than the residency. Right. And that group, I don't want to say where they like residents, but I suspect that you were doing some education and teaching and skill development in that group. Is that? Yes, we were. But we also had rotating residents oh, uh, that right. worked in the emergency room. They right. came from. Um, like family practice program and Family practice, surgery? right, and surgery, yeah. right. Okay. So we were teaching them. On the other hand, they came for a month at a time, and then they were gone. So it was constant turnover and starting from the beginning again with them, unlike yeah. emergency med- yeah. EM residents right. where you get you, the, used to them over the course of the years. Well, and they get used the, to the systems and yes. they develop right. beyond right. that. Okay, let me show but you how to do the basics. We were teaching uh, right from the get-go. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought, I knew that as a fact, but I hadn't remembered that. Do you um, have any strategies in terms of uh, just getting more into like what you've developed as showing up for work um, around preparing for work, either around what you do beforehand, how early you show up or anything like that, that have had that you feel like are keys to success for you and just leaving your shift feeling fulfilled at the end? Um, one of the keys for all emergency medicine physicians is to show up on time for the shift. I think that we all uh, begin to accept that that's a given something we need to do for our colleagues, something we want to have done for us. And by on time, you mean... Like you are ready to go. Second. Yes. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yeah. Not five minutes late, not even a few minutes late because everybody gets nervous. Now, do I need to listen to this next presentation? Are they going to make it here? Are they, did they forget their shift? Whatever. We always have to be on time to start for the shift. So I like to show up just a bit earlier so that I'm not running on in, all out of breath, all right. whatever else had gone on. So, but not far in advance, sure. but at least 10 minutes, five yeah. minutes early so that you can sit down at your computer, log in, calm down, take a few breaths before you get your sign-ups. So you're like you, and you, having that, you really appreciate it when you're signing out that the person who's coming on is ready to take over at that minute. Correct. Yeah. And that's why I think that most of us learn that pretty quickly. Yeah. And, uh, and are pretty good about yeah, I would say our group is, I mean, I don't know of many worlds where if you're like, I'm going to be three minutes late, or I might be because of weather or traffic that you didn't anticipate that you're calling ahead and apologizing. That's true. But if you've at least called ahead, that's a good thing. It's oh, yeah. when you don't notify at all, and the person is sitting there wondering what to do. Well, especially in a culture when it is pretty reliable, you even have this are you okay? Because I've, I had, I don't know, it was probably a year ago, I had overslept two alarms on my watch and my phone, and I don't remember exactly what it was that I didn't hear them. Sleeping before a night shift, and I got the wake up from a dead sleep phone call, mm-hmm. or my wife knocked on the door and said, why, why aren't you at work? Oh, and, and it's literally the people around you are like, are you okay? Did you, because if you're coming in at 11 p.m. Right. 
could have something happened, you know? If, right. And that's how reliable emergency medicine physicians are. They they typically are. Um, and our schedules tend throughout the country, I believe, to fluctuate so much that it can be easy. Probably everybody forgets a shift at some point in their career if they're in this for right. more than just right. a few months. Um, but then you're so apologetic uh, when you do it because you know what you've just done to the poor right. person still sitting there. Yep. It's unknown what's happening. And, mm-hmm. um, do you have any other, uh, so yeah, you're getting a little ready and starting the shift. Do you have, um, any particular steps, um, particularly focusing on when you're not supervising, um, residents or PAs directly in terms of like in our department, it's like CPOD, like that you approach your workflow for the day in terms of st- reading the chart, getting in the room. I mean, there's some standard stuff, but anything that you feel like, boy, I really try to do this on every patient or every visit that um, that helps me be efficient or helps you feel like you're checking. Okay, out. so you're talking about the primary patients, not the sign-outs at right. this point, right? Well, not the sign-outs and probably not the, I'm waiting for a resident to see them and mm-hmm. come back and tell sure. me. Sure. Um, Yes, I like to read the triage note first and yeah. uh, take a quick look at the vital signs. If the triage note suggests that the person has some ongoing issue that they're now in here with, I might look back and uh, see if they've had any recent visits for that issue. Um, but when we get into the patient room, since we have scribes now, the scribes tend to have the computer. I give them the computer. So now I no longer have access to that. But I don't need to spend uh, medical student type time <laughs> looking through these charts. The further you spend time in this field, you begin to know what you need to look up and uh, before you go in there. So you have a little bit of knowledge. And then I can let the patient uh, tell me. In learning that, like what to look up, what not to, or, or questions to ask, what not questions to ask, I don't feel like I could ask you in this interview the details of that. But was there any point where you started to learn how to edit down from the medical student down? Was that? Do you think that was in residency, or do you think you kept doing that as a staff doc? Like, oh right, I think you learn a lot in residency, but you don't learn everything by any means. A lot of it continues to change as yeah. you get out in practice, either as a sole practitioner somewhere or with another colleague or in a teaching facility. You continue to constantly learn. And then they continue to throw changes at you, whether right. you have a paper chart like the <laughs> old days versus now the computer. Um, but back in originally, we had to wait until they pulled these charts down from medical records and hauled them up. So sometimes you never got one, and sometimes it was hours later. So back then, you didn't uh, really review much of their past, which you can do much easier now with a computer. And are there any um, types of things you do with the patient in terms of introductions or sort of a script or anything that you start up with? Oh, I just introduce my name. I uh, say hi to everybody in the room, although I don't spend a great deal of time trying to find out how they're all related unless it becomes an issue uh, later on. Um, And then I always introduce the scribe. The nurse has usually already been in the room and introduced themselves. Yeah. Do you, um, 
one of the things I hear as a recurrent theme among women physicians is this, I never saw a doctor theme. And do you have any strategies that you've adopted or that you advise other younger physicians to? It does not matter whether you say introduce yourself as doctor, whomever. It does not matter because I continue to wear a white coat where very few people wear white coats anymore, but I like the pockets on them. Um, It's for the pockets, not for the, you don't think it matters for recognition? It doesn't. I have determined that's why I'm that. asking. I, I think that people now know that women are in medicine, but there is still a faction that will call you nurse. Yeah. Even after all of these years and the fact that I didn't introduce myself that way and the fact that I'm wearing the white coat, and I think that they can fairly well tell that I'm the one in charge making some decisions, it still happens. Yeah. And so is that sort of like it just get used to it it's yes. going to happen is sort of your advice well, <laughs> yes i probably was more annoyed way back when i first got my degree but it's so part of life that i uh, that I, that i'm not offended by it but i uh, if if needed i will correct them so that they remember who it is that I actually am and why I am the one able to be (laughs) doing some of these things to them or ordering some things so that they don't really think it's a nurse that's trying to um, put the chest tube in them or something like that. Um, And then are there any things like uh, if you get a bunch of patients and we've talked about CPOT again, I'm a little bit focused on the non-supervision world around managing an overload do you have any gear changes you do like oh now i'm gonna go read three charts and order stuff or am i gonna try to pick the easiest sounding or the hardest or the sickest from what just came in if they're all sick ask for help anything in that area that you would say you reliably go to um no i just try to look at uh who seems to be the sickest Sickest. based on the category they were triaged to, any information the nurse may give me in a quick, very quick look at their complaint. Okay. Um, yeah. But uh, but that that's kind of how I will decide who I'm going to see. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes you can get a very sick patient there. And in the department that we have, um, uh, there are other pods opened up for people to see. So very rarely, if it's somebody that's going to take a great deal of time, rather than have somebody just sit around, I will ask a nurse if they perhaps could get moved somewhere else. Not too often, because usually the other pods are filled too. Yeah. But uh, I feel badly in a department like ours having somebody just sit around if it's other hard. people have rooms, and I'm just not going to get You're just not getting there. Mine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have any... Um do you see particularly more in like a supervision role? Cause that's most often when you're working with others, but maybe when a PA or something like that, do you see things that people do that you consider either a waste of time and you wish you could train them? When I mean people, I mean, phys- other physicians or residents, man, I really try to get them to not do X or start doing X so that if they just had the perspective you had, they'd see how the system works better that way. Mm-hmm. And I have examples, but I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I'm interested in your examples. But some <laughs> of the um, things that I have noticed is people will go into a patient's room and maybe they need a rectal exam. Maybe they need a pelvic exam. But they won't 
do these kinds of things right at that time. They leave. So then they get uh, their attention diverted based on other things. Those things don't get done. Um, and you could have just done the whole thing right in there. You, yeah. You're not leaving, having to go back, having to... Uh, we have to go back enough times as it is. You right. might as well just get your physical done Dodd while done. you're in there. Yeah. Um, now I'm a bit luckier because I can do a pelvic exam sometimes without a without chaperone. a uh, chaperone. Yeah. Um, if the patient feels comfortable and all, and I feel comfortable with the patient, it's not recommended to do that um but i think women can sometimes get away with that more than men. well i'd argue the same with like a rectal exam in a man like or you know i think i probably will just say let's just roll over and put a finger in your butt and figure that out <laughs> 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 to be real clear about it yeah uh i mean just because i think that helps me go like look this is simple let's just get it done i i i particularly think in terms of that I see people kind of come back out sh and talk about it. Like, they're, should I go put in a chest tube? I'm like, just, yeah. you could have done it in the just time. You just <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now, some people are going to argue, oh, these parts of the exam are useless because the studies show that you don't get anything out of them and whatever. But in any event, I am talking about just getting the things done while yeah. you're in there. Um, and secondly, a big point of mine is that so many patients are not undressed. And I'm talking well, about go abdominal next. pain with their pants on and their belt up to right. their belly button, which covers half of their abdomen, and there they sit. And so when I go in the room, this is somebody that was seen earlier by a mid-level, and right. I go in the room, and there they are with these pants on and things. And So, yes, there are pet peeves I have. Well, when you were just talking, even not in that supervision model or the nurses should have done this, but just even in that in that scenario you're like well i'm just we're gonna have to get this done before i leave instead of leaving the room and saying well i'll have to come back and examine his exam his skin and his mm -hmm. like if it's at all relevant it's just mm -hmm. to like call somebody to get you to help them to boost them up and get their pants off if that's what you need or just right just get it done then rather than walking out because you waste a lot of steps and some people yeah. have worn these step counters when they work <laughs> and they're surprised at how much uh, mileage they put on their feet walking around. But some of it could actually be eliminated. Yeah. And um, and that would save time too. Yeah, I think so. Any other things? My examples, I, you know, it's just like lack trace set up or trying to figure out how to delegate things. Another tip was um, getting somebody else to wait for the interpreter to, on the phone to dial up or things like that to just say, Hey, I need an interpreter in there. I'm going to be finishing my note on my last guy or something while you figure that out. Mm -hmm. So that, cause I think I've learned that I've the same thing that makes me, let's just get this exam done. I think sometimes drives me to just say, and I'm just going to set this lac tray up and I'm just going to do this and I'll go get the water and I'll get the blanket and mm -hmm. I'll walk you to the bathroom and I'll like at some point I'm realizing like that actually becomes counterproductive. Yes. And that. Oh, you're trying to be nice to the patient, which is appropriate. <laughs> um, and I also think. You know, I am not above doing these kinds of things. It's just that then it stops me from doing the things that I probably really should be doing. We don't have a department. So we, if we have a scribe, that's fine. They go in there and take the notes and all. But it would almost be nice to have a nurse attached 
to you so that you could say all this stuff rather than coming out of the room, you don't find them, they're not around, or they are now on break and somebody else is covering, and you spend time looking for somebody to ask to do these things. So yeah, yeah. sometimes you just decide to do them yourself. But if you're looking to really make a department efficient, that is not efficient. Again, yeah. sometimes I just do it so that I don't look like I think I'm too good to do it because I don't. But um, it does it, take that's kind of what I'm getting at is like it's that balance of um, doing tasks that only you can do, like your note or a procedure or interviewing the next patient and deciding what tests that only you can place or meds or whatever, or <laughs> doing things that seem expeditious in a way that boy, it's going to take me five minutes to find a tech to set this up and then, and then, right. And then, or I could just do this. And, and I think I'm pushing myself more to at least to, to really just say some things that I, it doesn't help to put the patient getting the water is very direct. Like I'm trying to help you get better and address your needs, setting up the lac tray or finding the ortho card or something I don't think the patients view that as helping them. Yes, there might I be a few so scenarios where you're like, they're literally like, I can be out at the door for my cab to the birthday party in three minutes if you help. Mm -hmm. That might be a difference. But I'm mm -hmm. in most cases, I can try to say, well, it's still going to be better to build a system to rely on the support staff to help with that more. I agree. And if you, the flip side is if you start doing it all yourself, then I think sometimes that leadership level question is like, why are we paying for these people? <laughs> and then, and then all of a sudden you're like, wait, I, I wish I were using them <laughs> so that I could use them. And I don't always know where they are. They have different duties and sometimes they have to take a patient to the floor. So they're gone out of the department, but I don't always know what they're doing. And so sometimes probably unfairly, I'm assuming that they aren't, Working. Yeah. Um, just because they're not around and they're supposed to be around. Um, and I think that's when, I mean, there are times when obviously they, I think probably in that benefit of the doubt, there's a lot of times they're in the room helping to turn somebody and do something else. But, mm -hmm. you know, when you build a department, I think you're trying to say like the most expensive resources like docs are the yeah. ones who are, should almost never be, have nothing to do. Right. But that means that likely your le less expensive resources probably do have slack time because hopefully you're able to grab them at the moment's notice. Yeah. And I think sometimes that looks like they're doing nothing. And then, yes. But you need slack time in those groups so that you don't have slack time by the most so that they're there providers. when you need them. Yeah. Right. Probably, though, that's interesting because I wonder how much slack time physicians actually need. So if you used us to the maximum, always interviewing a patient, always doing a procedure, always ordering stuff, no downtime, I don't think we could do it. So I think sometimes we actually need a little slack time, like going to get the water or whatever, but I don't know how much of it and probably varies for different people. Well, and I think as I, I want to explore as I do more of these interviews with community docs that aren't in an emergency, an academic setting to just try to not so much see what's the right answer, but just hear the variety of answers around that. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think at least there's perception that, you know, there may be a difference in how their departments are set up or, and slack time. But I would argue, you know, I think we used to, 
we've still talked a little bit about how when our former department was set up in a way that people co-mingled more from different pods, like I'd be working the east side and you'd be on the west side, we'd run into each other a lot more. And I think that most people would cite our more isolation is a negative and having little bits of slack time to check in with other people. My hypothesis would be adds a immeasurable immeasurable amount of wellness to just I think it does too. during the shifts. I, I definitely think it does. Um, most of us don't get lunch breaks. We don't get right. breaks. They're not worked into our uh, schedule. And um, so we're usually eating while we're typing or working on a chart or ordering things or so we really are trying to fit, fit in the meal. So we right. really aren't taking pure slack time. Yeah. Um, unless you end up doing some of these uh, lesser lesser than physician required jobs. Yeah. So do you um during a shift and there are a number of things that can um, set people off their center, but in terms of managing emotion, I feel as if others would put you out on a pedestal with terms of like managing emotion and staying rational and stressful situation, which is everybody in emergency medicine by definition is almost abnormally when compared to the population in an abnormal category of, um, staying calm under fire. But in terms of, um, I think a long-term career, it's figuring out how to get through the highs and lows and a little more even keel is a key to success is sort of my opinion. My opinion. And so I'm wondering if you have any, I guess, thoughts or strategies around emotion management. Um, yeah, some of it is uh, just your own personality, I think. Um, obviously, the longer you're in this field, the more uh, emotionally charged issues you see, both within your colleagues, within the department, and then with the patients and with their families, so that you get a little more used to some of this, and it's not quite as provoking as it is when you're early on in your career. But again, some of it is personality and, um, and how you learn to develop that I think again, I, I go back to my childhood with my very anxiety ridden mother who probably drove me insane. And <laughs> I did not want to be like that. Just so you falling were, apart I mean, it at almost crises. Not to get us into like psychoanalysis, but on some <laughs> level of of like you had to be the calm one is kind of what I'm hearing you say a little bit. You had to be the least or you had to average the family out in the other direction either that or i just didn't want to act like that sure um because i knew how terrible it felt to be around somebody that acted like that um and so i think that that did but again the more comfort level you acquire with your knowledge Mm -hmm. which is why it's so important to stay up in this field you don't graduate and then quit learning you've got to stay up in it, and that's not just based on your own. It's by talking to other people, by going to uh, CMEs, by if your own department puts on courses or your hospital sure. does, you go, you stay up on stuff. The more comfort level you feel, also you don't tend to get quite as uh, 
anxiety ridden. Have you built any strategies around that you'd share? As I look over at the stack of unread ASAP journals that on my mm. desk, <laughs> <they're>, <laughs> there I is, still try to find ways to keep up on. Yeah, there's a ton of stuff out there, obviously, and some of us are under the gun to have to publish things. So yeah. you get more and more stuff published, but you're going to have to find out for yourself what areas you uh, are able to best learn from. Some people learn from lectures, others learn better from reading articles on their own. It's, it's what works best for you, and then you find the ones that seem to benefit you the most not to just say you've read the most whatever, but you are actually getting something out of it. Um, but it is very important, again, to maintain uh, confidence in, in yeah. how you're practicing is to remain educated in the field. So that would be a good point to pivot into learning more about your motivations to develop your forensic background that you developed around both around sexual assault, but as well as just in general forensic medicine and the Bush fellowship you ended up taking. Is that, are there any sort of general like, Hey, this is going to be an important way for me to keep the energy alive in emergency medicine, like mm -hmm. mid career kinds of things mm -hmm. that you would say drove you into that or were there other factors? So it, this field exposes us to so many aspects of medicine, uh, so many other fields, um, and uh, so many other opportunities to practice if you want to be a physician on a cruise ship or wilderness medicine or a whole host of things. So you sure. get exposed to things, and um, you may find some of, some avenue of that something that really interests you. So in my case, it was forensic medicine. It started off uh, way back, uh, the staff doctors did the sexual assault exams. Um, and I distinctly remember having a, there was a small, a, a young blind girl in the ER that another staff physician was seeing. And she was saying somebody was coming into her room at night and pecking at her or doing something. So the other physician thought... Um, that she was just dreaming that fabricating stuff. it or something. Well, uh, yeah, maybe not, but more dreaming it or okay. didn't know because she couldn't see whatever it was. Anyway, I thought that just doesn't seem like a fair evaluation. There could possibly be something going on. So at that point, I decided to do some um, some shifts uh, with our child sexual and physical abuse um, group that's in the like Twin the Cities. the county or the MCRC. Yes, yeah. right. That's in the Twin Cities, but not part of, uh, was not part of this hospital. Yeah. So I would do uh, a shift uh, a week or a shift every two weeks over there in lieu of a shift here. And that's how I first started it, thinking what I learned there I can bring over to this hospital. But then I realized you don't need two hospitals a mile apart that all offer this same service. So they do a fine job of it there. Uh, I don't need to bring it over here and just right. compete with them. But uh, then I did uh, take on our adult uh, sexual assault program and started that up because yeah. we uh, didn't have much going on with that. Was that, that new in the country or were there lots of other SANE programs SANE out programs, there? Uh, it was not the first by any means, but they were just starting there to a lot take of off. Out there. Right. Just starting to take off when I started this one 
Okay. And then uh, did that feel like it was, was that like pulling teeth out of everybody or were they ready to give that up or was that, um, <laughs> so, I mean, in terms of building the protocols, I mean, building a program like that over time is a lot of energy and blood, sweat and tears, I would think. Yeah. So up uh, until that point, so the, the staff physicians quickly decided that the PAs could do these cases too, because honestly, you don't find emergency medicine physicians that want to do the sexual assault exam yeah. for a number of reasons. They are time consuming. There's a huge legal aspect that uh, people aren't interested in. And then there's always that possibility of having to testify in court. So for all those reasons, the uh, emergency staff physicians were happy to unload this. And at that time we had some PAs that were joining us and we started to unload it on them. And then we got our residency better yet. We'll unload it on the residents. (laughs) They need to learn this too. So I was kind of overseeing it and reviewing their charts. Yeah. But then, um, uh, then sometime in there, I decided maybe it actually is the right thing to set this aside and train some nurse examiners for this. Up until that point, I had argued vehemently that emergency physicians can do this exam. Sure. And they have a lot of experience in doing, well, mostly female genital exams. And so they know what's normal or what's infection, what isn't acute trauma. Yeah. And so I was always arguing that it should stay in the ER. But then I realized, you know, nobody even wants to do it. So maybe I need to accept the fact that people are really not interested in this and start up a SANE program, which I did. So er, there were a lot of people very excited that I was starting it up, but nobody willing to help out. So it really was a grassroots writing all the policies all by myself. Yeah, um, that is a... I can't say I have any comparable amount of work, but I think... It's it's particularly in an area that involves legal, I mean, often would involve legal testimony, legal, people put the word legal around it because it just often involves in conflict resolution in the legal system. And that might involve testimony and trying to keep everything bomb proof as well. Well, you're right. So when you're not collecting specimens to go to our lab, you are actually right. collecting specimens to go to a um criminal lab right um so it is hugely legal but it also is having to deal with the patient and what they went through and their emotions and and their injuries if they have any any infections they were exposed to but that was the start of my interest in forensic and then um i got quite interested in other aspects besides Mm. just that and so that's when i decided I wanted to do an actual forensic fellowship. And that was like, because uh, you wrote your own grant program, application, is that right? right? And program, and was it, I can't remember if it was a year? It was a year, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it was yeah. a year. So there are no uh, forensic programs out there right now for um, emergency physicians. So mm-hmm. I did write my own um, my own uh, courses, essentially. I did take some actual courses through uh, Hamlin University here okay. and then uh, worked at the medical examiner's office in mm-hmm. Hennepin County uh, with them. So we were doing forensics on uh, deceased people, but right. you can apply much of what you're seeing with that, the wounds and all of that, and the cause of the wounds to living people to some degree. Now, 
they have an advantage in that the wound doesn't change uh, <laughs> once somebody's dead yeah. versus us where there's going to be some kind of change of it, healing or just changing of the depth of bruising or yeah. whatever when people survive. So that was the value of seeing living people as my career right? and seeing how things change versus just them. So it was a really a very nice uh, combination of the two. And then I have used it to do... Uh, that was my next question. To do a um, consulting service. Yeah. Is uh, that something you're still regularly doing? Has that been on and off? Has it been no, solid I have done of it, work? No, I have done it up until now. But yeah. I'm probably going to stop because uh, we'll be moving out of the state. Yeah. I'm licensed here in Minnesota. I would have to get licensed in Washington, which I could do. But... Uh, I never have advertised this. It's been yeah. word of mouth. So it's uh, police, it's uh, attorneys. That's that, what I say. Your cl your clients for this consulting clients, isn't typically other docs. Is that right? No, it's yeah. not other docs. It's uh, prosecutors, uh, defense attorneys, and because it's criminal law we're dealing right. with, and uh, and police departments. I never wanted to advertise it. I would, so I didn't because it can interfere with work here. Um, their schedules are at the whim of the judge which could who could care less about what my work schedule is so yeah. it can be very difficult to have to um so it's have like having work a, in those things right so you them having a career that maximizes your clinical forensics consulting gets results in being direct conflict with showing up for a shift <laughs> Yeah, so you have to go to court. They say, we're going to need you on this day, so I switch shifts, whatever, get that day off, and then lo and behold, court is delayed for whatever reason, and right. they now need you the next day, which is where I switched the shift into. So I didn't want it to take up a big portion of my life, so it was usually about three cases going on at the same time in my life, at the same time I was doing this. Yeah. So it's been... Really fascinating and a way to learn criminal law. I bet um, it has. But well, I know yeah, you've I served courses. as a lot of, oh, uh, I don't know. When, when somebody here gets some type of subpoena, you end up doing some, you're often Talking the person them, yeah. that either breathes a bit of calm into them or just like, here's the basics. Here's what you need to what you need to do, right? Do. Because I don't think any of us get taught uh, much about the legal field other than malpractice, which is civil law, which is very different right. thing. Only most doctors don't understand the difference. And if you say lawyer, all they think of are, are malpractice lawyers. Right. They don't realize that there's actually this whole field of criminal law out there. So, um, and being in emergency medicine, you get exposed to these victims of yeah. crimes. So you may get called into court and sure. um but you don't really get any official training on it no. by and large you get your training if anything on malpractice and what it means and how to avoid it and that isn't what this is so right. yeah i will tell people what they can expect because they aren't the one now having to defend themselves which is really what malpractice is you're defending yeah. yourself but if you're just a, a witness testifying in a criminal case you don't need to feel like you're the one you're defending yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You're just simply. Do you reporting. have anything like, I don't want to say that you could summarize those key learnings, but are there anything that you'd say for everybody that might be listening to this, that when they like, what are your go-to one, two, three things when you say, Oh, you got subpoenaed on behalf of a victim's 
to support um, a um, alleged assailant who's going to court and mm-hmm. um, you know what types of things do you tell other docs? So I tell them that uh, their exposure was typically sometimes it is to the um, person charged with the crime. Maybe you did treat them. You know, they got arrested and got an injury from the police, whatever. But most of the time you are saw the victim. And so, but you do not know anything else about the case. So you really are not biased at all, even though for the most part it's the prosecutor that will subpoena you. That doesn't mean you're on their team trying to help them win. You simply go in and report what was said, because often you can say what they said to you. That's not hearsay because you're acting as a physician, Mm. but some of this is the legal stuff. And um, you can say what they said and what you found and how you interpret their injuries. Mm -hmm. Uh, What If it was consistent with what they say caused it or if it met a high level of degree of injury like a ri- like yeah like a risk of inj- a risk of death or risk of serious yes, bodily harm that because kind of they charge these crimes based on how serious the injuries were so you say that kind of stuff to the best of your knowledge but you are not there as this is my team and we got to win this case it really should not matter to you what uh, who wins um cuz you're advocating for the truth basically like you really want that to come out as best as you know it Right. Now, the role that I would play would be a little different when I was an expert witness. That's different than what you're doing when you're the treating physician. Sure. So, yeah, that would be a, a different, different deal. But thing. for most emergency physicians, they are the treating physician testifying as to okay. how they encountered this person in the first place and what was wrong with them. Got it. That's helpful. And it sounds like, do you feel like just adding that compliment to your medical career was a, in retrospect, a big win for you? Yes, I loved it because uh, there are aspects of the law that I love, although I am so happy I never went to law school. (laughs) I don't want to be a lawyer, but this way I got to view the law from sort of an outside ring, be somehow involved in it, learn learn some... um, aspects of law, which I have taken a number of courses of now since. Um, And I think it's fascinating. But again, I'm not unhappy. It's not my career. It's funny because I think I view, um, you know, most people affiliate me with some type of technology or computers. And I I would argue there's a reason I'm not a computer scientist because I like that aspect of the domain and things, but I don't think I could ever be trying to develop algorithms all day and uh-huh. debating the fastest uh-huh. way to sort things all the time. I right. like touching that that most people in medicine don't. Right. And that provides me with a competitive advantage, but I still find myself drawn to like, oh, it's also nice to put in a chest tube every once in a while. Kind right, of thing. right. No, I think that that's the beauty of our profession is you can find some little avenue you want to go down, but not right. have to be immersed in it like you kind of have yeah. to be in emergency medicine. It's just something that you, well, it can be more than a hobby, but it's something that you can have studied a great deal, but it's not your sole career. So you 
dabble, so to speak. Well, and I think that emergency medicine in general lends themselves lends itself to dabbling because it is a generalist type of thing. You've yes. got to see a very broad domain, and the shift work allows you to compartmentalize your life in ways that are adjustable as compared to I have a thousand patients on my panel or I'm the only guy in town who does X procedure. And so when anybody ever needs that procedure, they look to to me or I feel like I'm withholding some type of care. Right. And of course, depending on where you work, you can uh, set your own schedule easier than other places. Yeah. Um, And that's true. Probably a locums can the most months flexible. off yeah. yeah the most flexible um but otherwise you want to look at your program and see just how much input you have into your own schedule okay that's that seems you know i think that's i i try to advocate for whether you're in academics or teaching like finding that niche of really helps i think build an energy level because it helps you professionally because people know you for something as well as it helps you have a reason to read detailed literature. Like, you know, I can't read every one of these journals I was just mentioning, but I skim them for the titles of areas in my domain and try to Mm -hmm. at least read some of those abstracts. And if, oh boy, I'm amazed somebody actually got that study done. Then I read the whole study, (laughs) you know, and trying to teach that to others because I think, I've looked to people in our group that have, you know, Joel Holger always just felt like he was on top of everything. At least he put that out, that vibe out that we all thought, how could he keep up with all these things? Mm-hmm. Um, but he found a niche and it was a lot in specific aspects of medicine that he knew a lot about, particularly around testing and analytics of things like that. And Right. Um, I, think it, I think it helps. There are some of us in the field that probably will have a career of just doing clinical work and are perfectly satisfied with that. And there are others that uh, really need to find some part of this that really fascinates them that they want to dive, do a deeper dive into. And then there are even another group that will find some part that's not medicine that they really focus their lives on when they're not at work. Well, that's what I was going to say is I feel like there's a... Even the people that you don't think have a niche, they're just working clinical shifts in general emergency medicine. Once you peel back a little bit and look deeper, oh, it turns out in some other part of their life, they're active in a hobby or which maybe for them even not just a hobby, uh, another avocation or or in a church or in a volunteer role that mm-hmm. um, really um, is a way to use that flexibility of shift work and emergency medicine to, and the resources it gives you to dive into some other area in life and find fulfillment. Yes. I think that uh, it's important to find another area, but again, I, there may be a faction that, that don't really have anything else. And yeah. Then they do this well, as their and work think, and right. That's and it. that, and it's, um, I'm, I don't want to say I haven't met those people, but I, I am looking for some of those people because I, because being able to see high volume of patients on a full-time schedule again and again, particularly people in crisis can, or people who are making repeatedly 
poor decisions mm-hmm. <laughs> and put themselves in crisis, or at least that's how we view it, that can be pretty draining over years and years and years, at least yeah. in my perspective. No, in, so, mine, in mine as well. So that's why I am not sure how those people do it. That's and why I'm looking for them. <laughs> I would, yeah, and let me know. I will. That'll be <laughs> if, a future. I'll, I'll warn everybody, like, this is that person. Find them, because yeah. I do think that this field... Um, well, we talk about our burnout and whatever that means, probably something different to everybody, but um, but I think it's real. I think people, humans, can be extraordinarily draining. Um, yeah. If you, that's, unless you completely lose any uh, emotion <laughs> right, toward them at all. I, I'll call it sociopathic on, on some <laughs> level. Like you're just completely disengaged from their emotional well-being. Mm-hmm. I can envision you can make a lot of decisions and, mm-hmm. and stay so detached. But it's, you know, otherwise it's it's pretty tough. I want to ask you about um, sort of, I'll call it the state of um, gender equality in emergency medicine and um, talking a f- with a few other women in our group about... Um, how you might have been an advocate or what you what types of things you still feel like I have to advocate for we we need to explicitly work on x to help set a more or a level playing field for women in this career is mm-hmm. that, did that make sense the way i framed mm-hmm. it so more and more women are going into medicine and that helps a lot um i think women have to watch themselves closely they can be mean and nasty to other women and competitive and backstabbing and that's something that women need to watch amongst themselves Um, contrary to men's opinions women don't always just go out to lunch and lambast men (laughs) (laughs) and how awful they are that actually doesn't occur yeah but there are still things that go on uh even in a place like this where i think that if i were to ask our group our group of staff physicians if they think that they are sexist i would probably predict that none of the men would say yes Uh And yet what they fail to realize that they do quite regularly is um, interrupt women when they're talking and um, perhaps restate the same thing that a woman just said, which tends to send the message that uh, obviously you couldn't get that out clearly enough, so I need to help you. And that does go on. Amongst our group, and there have been many times in staff meetings I've wanted to point that out to people, but uh, I've opted to not do it. But it does go on, and by some people that I will guarantee you would never think of themselves as sexist. Mm-hmm. So it's those subtle it's little you could just tell sexist kind of things that still go on, but at least at this area, and we're in uh, the northern part of the country, I don't know what the southern part's like. <laughs> I just am going to guess it's... Uh, a bit worse than here, but that's only because I've heard that kind of stuff. I've never experienced it. But up here, um, there still is some sexism, but it's not terrible. Uh, we aren't, uh, the women, at least in this group, are being paid equally. We aren't uh, being paid less uh, with all the stuff we have set up. Yeah. If you do look at the people in the higher positions within this hospital, though, um, the chiefs of departments, whatnot, 
Hmm. You'll find it the men outnumber the women. Yeah. Now some of that women again are going to have to accept it is them doing that because of family or whatever reasons. But um, so you have to really look and say, is it true sexism that's doing that, or is it choices women are making about family life and career and things yeah. that are still big issues? Because I still do think most women um, have the greater input into their family. And I think that's probably true. It's funny in my own life. I think I've um, I've tried to determine if. Well, back to the leadership thing. Is as as you build jobs for people in ways that allow them to support a family, whether you're male or female. I think, for better or worse, something about leadership roles is not all that compatible with like working point six or right. <laughs> or right. working or dealing with um, a sick kid in the daycare for the lamest reason possible calls and tells you to pick him up in the middle of the day and now you have to cancel. And I think the higher you climb on an org chart, frankly, probably regardless of your gender, it becomes more difficult to handle that part of your life. But I would imagine, um, it's, I guess what that's me hoping as someone who took four months off for my paternity, I'm like, I'm doing and I'm taking as much off as possible. And I'm not going to really try to think about career implications. And even as my child grows, who's still pretty young, you know, thinking about the type of commitments I'm going to make if I were to take a different job, based upon that. And I, I kind of hope in life that that equals out, not just equals out between men and women, but that you don't have to feel quite as either or. But unfortunately, I think leadership is this role of sort of taking personal ownership for a bigger organization's outcome and they and leaders demand that of each other. And then you end up always That's being right. accountable and you have to be jumping when one of your leaders says how high. And, and that's why I think that uh, women can't just across the board say it's unfair here. There are more men leaders and whatnot. We have to truly look at ourselves and decide if we played a role in the fact that we're not in a leadership role because we didn't want to give up some of our family kinds of things. But there have been a number of changes, I can say, in my career. Really? No question about it. Yes. Um, uh, well, I don't doubt that, but I'd be curious on knowing what you would ID or you would put out there as any key ones that. So, for example, you said you took a four month paternity leave. Right. Now, I don't think, well, there was no such thing as a paternity, right. paternity leave. And uh, when I was in my residency and had my first child, I got four weeks. Right. Now, they are taking more time, whatever, now the mothers and even the fathers are. So that was different, four weeks, and now you're back at it and you're working. Um, I right. can remember, that, so I was pregnant during my residency, and I can remember the chief of our department saying to me, this is just a normal physiologic condition, <laughs> which is not wrong, but he should try Running around <laughs> 60, 80, 120 hours a week um, oh. when you're eight months pregnant. Um, it was a typical sort of sexist kind of thing. Now, right. when I came here, again, back to what we were talking about, I um, was pregnant now with my 
with a different child and uh, wanted to work part-time. So I was the first uh, emergency medicine trained person to work in the department. Okay. Um, but I wanted to be part-time and I was pregnant. And so the chief of this department said, well, we'll hire you as a moonlighter until you deliver this child. <laughs> I don't think that kind of thing would happen nowadays either. And as, but I didn't know this area. I think back and kick myself for not being sort of, well, I don't know how to say this on the <laughs> mic, but for <laughs> being firmer in saying, uh, you know, I'm actually trained in this field. You don't have anybody trained yeah. here. And you're telling me I've got to be a moonlighter moonlight. until I have this baby. Um but uh, so there were things like that that went on, and we're not talking about, uh, you know, the Stone Age. On the other hand, there were 48 states when I was born. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we are talking about the Stone oh. Age. But, um, I'm glad but, you put that out there and have me. <laughs> but so there have been a number of changes, but I think it's uh, still uh, – Still difficult. To well, and it still needs to be on the radar, somewhere. right? I mean, it's not like yeah. the battle is won. It's not, but uh, it's improved, and I've watched it improve um, yeah. over the well, years. Well, I think you've had a big a hand bit. in improving it, too. I mean, not individually you've lifted the whole load, but I've been with you and in a lot of different meetings where you've advocated for positions and um, tried to help people understand that perspective. And so I think you get a lot of at least local credit with that, too, so... Do you th do you think there anything that you try to put on young women physicians radar as in terms of other than you know what you've already said in terms of well you just talked about negotiating your job in a way that like you kind of regret at that time you mm -hmm. could have probably been a little bit more um, assertive about hey I'm actually becoming the one you you actually are seeking out here and yet you're putting me in this role and granted that was a different time but do you think that people still have that i'm i'm not quite good enough or i don't have the right context in which to advocate for myself in that way did um, that make sense I yes no i don't know if um the women do. Of course, when you have residents, you have a whole range of personalities, some of which are um, very assertive and some who aren't so assertive. Uh, it kind of amazes me in this field to not be real assertive because it is kind of a field where it seems like that personality is drawn more to this yeah. because you do deal with some difficult people and can't be just walked all over. Right. Um, so I am usually quite interested in some of our residents, and it tends to be the women more than the men, but there have been some men that are seem fairly passive. But watch them develop over the three years, and some of them can become quite, yeah. quite assertive. So that's interesting. But the other thing that I uh, notice, and it's part of today's way of uh, living, you used to have, if you had a meeting, you went in for the meeting. Now you can sit at home in your PJs, calling <laughs> in from home and doing whatever you're doing or 
not paying attention to the meeting as you've got it turned on, whatever you are doing. Right. So obviously being an old timer, I don't completely endorse that because I do think that there is an engagement when you are actually sitting there face to face with people versus just sitting on the other end of the line, uh, listening in on the phone. Um, but, uh, sometimes women are a little more apt to do it because they want to get the kids off to school and, things along those lines. I think that you need to be sure that you show yourself to be engaged if you want to advance in something. Um, And it doesn't mean always going in for every meeting, but you've got to be present. You can't do everything from a distance, Sure, at least not yet in this field, I don't think. But I also realize, again, I'm an old timer and people are getting used to working from home and doing a lot from home. I don't know. I think that's still a mix. I think it's, um, there's sort of the ability to do it, but, but I think, um, people underestimate the advantage you give yourself when you show up. Your face is I drove across town this morning for, sometimes I use the, the, have I, do I know the people in the room? Mm -hmm. Because if I know them all, and the topics I generally are kind of more administrative than calling in often you're probably not going to get a lot of benefit, but if there's nobody, if there are people that I don't know, or it's a new meeting, like I am trying hard to get a, so that's what I'm saying is like, I drove across town this morning to just be at a building yes. with at the, just to be there so that I could read the faces in the room and, and, and I'm quite skilled at, technologically transferring myself <laughs> via yes. all of the tools. Yes, you're very skilled and yet you show up to a lot of the meetings. But I think that if people, at least at this point, want to advance, they need to get themselves known, need to be recognized. I've been on some uh, committees where some individuals have only ever called in. I have no idea what they even look like. Um, so I I think that there is still importance in knowing people as we become less and less actual social and yeah. with everything on phones and Distance. whatever, uh, I wonder what our humanity is becoming. But there are many reasons. I don't want to live forever. But there are many reasons <laughs> that, that I would down. like to uh, come back and see what uh, our society is like in a certain number of years yeah. and see w- whether this has been a good thing or a bad thing. I agree. I mean, I think there's, it's, it's, it's uh, it'd be very interesting. Cause I think even as medicine itself gets to be, when we talk about showing up for a shift, we started talking about that. Like Telemedicine? we continue to talk about what does it look like to see a patient from across town or yes. there are ERs where the low acuity patients are seen by docs who are logging in to see a few patients during surge and they can do that because they have a nurse who will do parts of the exam and they'll talk on a screen. Right. I'm not naive to think that this isn't the way we're headed. I see it all the time. I see people. um, It's just interesting. It's just where will it go? Yeah. And speculating for the unintended consequences that all of a sudden come out. Um, We lose um, a lot of social. We lose humanity. We lose like you said, facial expressions are still a huge way people communicate. And when you are not seeing that, you lose a lot of communication. But 
There are changes that go on and changes that have happened in the past that seem to be fine in right. my lifetime. And so, but again, I am just curious where this will head. Well, you might have to just live for quite a bit longer. Well, no, I'll come back. All right, you'll come back. Yeah. You have a cryo thing planned. <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't have that. Yeah, I actually don't have that. Um, I, you know, I'm kind of just scanning my. Um, um, the one question that I can't avoid asking is, um, I guess I was asking around a little bit of, um, uh, like what what I should might ask you because we've you've you've interacted with a lot of people in our world in this world. I mean, I, I was thinking about looking up some numbers of how many residents, but you know, we've had hundreds of maybe a hundred and a half or like hundred and forty residents at this point that you've been a part of all of them. I think so. There's a lot of people out there with whom you've had interactions with and that re probably remember some particular patients with you. And, um, and so it feels like you've defined a standard for a lot of people in emergency medicine. I don't know if that's something I would be shocked if you think about that on a daily basis, but as I'm looking down, having known a lot of residents and starting to learn what that's like to go, which class were you in and which? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The first graduating class was 99. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I'm, it's, it's hard to, um, you know, I think, I guess the, the question when I said, I'm, I was trying to figure out is I feel like a lot of people would identify you as a badass in emergency medicine and, and in a positive way. I mean, you could use that because I think that, as you mentioned, you're assertive, you're decisive, you've taught a lot of people about, um, you know, right and wrong and like what, how to be treated, how to let other people treat you and doing that through just modeling interactions with patients and with uh, colleagues or consultants who you're on the phone with or in the trauma room with or you're in a meeting with. And um, I don't know if there's a question in this as I get there. I think there's a little bit of, you know, I want to thank you for doing all that as well as um, trying to figure out if there are any other tricks that we haven't talked about that you would say like, boy, once I learned this, I just built that confidence or I built that um, stamina to, 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 to push back and be, be advocating for what's right in these multiple situations again and again and again. So is there anything else that you think that you give advice to me or others that are out there? Um, no. So, uh, I appreciate what you just said. That was very, very nice. I think that you meant it to be nice. <laughs> good. Um, so because, the others, because I'm not the only one who use that term, but yeah, that's good. <laughs> well, again, in this field, I think you can get walked all over and you can have patients trying to um, take advantage of you and do things. So I perhaps built up kind of my badass sort of uh, <laughs> person, but I'm sure that that was just part of me too. And the reason I yeah. say that is that when I started here um, – we had a different way to handle our major trauma. Yeah. We had this room 10. Right. So it was sort of felt like the emergency physicians could not take care of major trauma. It had to get up to the operating room for the surgeons to deal with, which kind of shows you where we stood on the scale of respect. Right. <laughs> but um, at some point, it was determined that somebody needed to interact with the surgery department, kind of be a liaison. 
and I was the one picked. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't well, volunteer? No, but uh, no, and I was picked, and most likely because it was felt like I was the one that could challenge them. They were a very challenging group uh, at that time. I think that they're vastly different now. Um, but, for example, you'd go to a conference where we'd talk about the Room 10s. I would attend those, and the first question was about, if anything went badly with the patient was how long were they in the ER? <laughs> um, so there was a lot of blame wanting to be thrown right. at us. So nobody wanted to attend those things. So I got picked to have to do it. So obviously it must have been that our chief of, that depart of the department at the time thought, good, I'll dump this on her. She's the only one that can take on these uh, people that don't really respect our skills down here. So since that time, it's kind of progressed, I guess you could say. But I've had to learn along the way, too, that sometimes it went too far. It was viewed as rude or not, uh, not the best way to act. So I think that we all need to continue to learn and, and get feedback. Um, all of our personalities are somewhat are, are great in some situations right. and wrong for other situations. Right. And you need to um, learn to when it's in wrong for the situation, how you're going to modify it. Well, and I think you talked a little bit, you know, we just mentioned lifetime learning and even in this area of how you interact, it changes around you. You can't pick one way and go to the trauma committee meeting for 20 years and use that same way because the people around you change, the mm -hmm. strategies change, you win some battles, your respect level changes, you might, and so you can't, or you might be viewed as the role model when you were the outcast before and you could take on a more contrary point of view and now you're the, you can't be quite as um, anti-establishment or something like that. I'm kind of rambling a bit, but I think uh, learning that self-awareness is part of both emergency medicine seeing patients as well as, um, you know, doing that kind of committee work, or I'm sure when you're developing the sexual assault program or other things is trying to figure out how do you, when to push and how hard to push is, right. is a acquired skill. <laughs> right. And I think that we all need to do that throughout our whole lives is reevaluate our positive points and our negative points and try to make some changes to the negative points. Now at this hospital, we get reviewed by everybody under the sun, as far as I can tell on a regular basis, <laughs> uh, the nurses, the techs, the residents, the fellow staff, you know, every, we're getting a lot of reviews. Um, like, like pers like in your yearly evaluation, you mean, right? Yes. Or, people yeah. fill out those right. different, um, 360s forms, yeah. right. And write comments and all. And uh, it's easy at first to look at a comment and think, oh, that person just didn't understand or doesn't like me or whatever. But, you know, you need to sometimes take it for what it is and say, right. you know, maybe I actually do need to calm down a bit on this or change this or whatever. Yeah. And we should be able to do that as we go along. You're not going to ever get everything right. You're not going to be the right person for everybody. You know, some people need doctors that tell them everything and other people want doctors that give them choices and the same with people you work with but um it's nice to keep an eye on yourself yeah um 
And it takes a while to actually realize that because you come out of your residency and you kind of think, yeah, I'm a doctor, I know what to do when you go along, but then you realize that sometimes what you, the way you're doing it maybe not the yeah. best and you need to change Modify. a little bit. Yep. All right, well, I've been taking a lot of your time. I'm gonna try to wrap up in three questions. The first is, are there any aspects of your personal life that you feel like have been that create energy for you that that you have gone back to whether it's exercise or meditation or relationships or other things that you're like man that if i didn't have that i couldn't have done what i've done yeah i think that we all need to find a um escape and hopefully a healthy one, yeah. not uh, with <laughs> drugs or alcohol, but that's not unusual for people mm -hmm. to turn to that. But for me, um, I do running. I run. Running. But I don't run with a group. Yeah. I run my dog uh -huh. and myself. And um, uh, so that I can just sort of. Every day? Yes. Winter? Winter. Yeah. Outside. Outside. Winter. Yeah. Yep. Steel you can actually treads, do it. Or do you studs or do you just uh, yeah, no, figure out the skills? No, I fell, you know. Yeah, I'm aware. <laughs> um, and I have fallen a number of times, and every time I'm so happy that I only broke one bone here. But uh, yeah, I use <laughs> like yak treads, treads and treads. yes, all the tools. All right. Yes, my most expensive outfits are my winter gear here for the fifty below stuff. You can't, you can't. Uh, play around here sometimes in the winter you know as someone has ridden i've tried to ride my bike a long time like that but i the mantra of there's no bad weather only bad clothing is <laughs> uh one that i think it's true it's a, but you either put, a rationalization or a true statement i can't tell which but. no it is true i think but it's my most expensive clothing the stuff that can get me through the 50 below temps 50 below windshields but in any case yeah that's what i found but i'm somebody that is not afraid to be alone with myself and actually don't mind spending some time alone just to kind of reflect on on things. And so I can do that with the running. Well, it sounds like that's almost a requirement for you. Like you've learned that that's, if I don't do that, you're not healthy or something like right. that. Yeah. Right. To the point that my husband thinks it's OCD, but, uh, and <laughs> I guess it is, but as long as it's reasonably healthy, right. I'm not out there. That's the key. I think something. finding healthy rewards as an adult that work is a constant strategy. Yeah, and I hope that. everybody can find it because we do have a lot of stressful, stressful situations, um, things that leave you either questioning your own skills or why did I miss this or, or just feeling terrible about some death you had to declare yeah. or some awful interaction people yeah. did to each other or whatever whatever, you need to figure out ways to... Rebuild. <laughs> yes, so you don't wind up with depression, PTSD, all of it's, these things. It's so easy to... I mean, it's you think you're doing some things, but it doesn't take a lot to set you off your center and then something else, and then next thing you know, it's pretty hard to get back to, to center. I mean, with my own health history and trying to just figure out... It's amazing how... You don't know how high-functioning you are until you're not functioning at that level um, oh, and right. climbing yourself back up. And so that self-care that you need to do to keep yourself there. And um, it's easy to replace that for a short term with things that seem like they're rewarding you well, but they're actually trading no, I, future happiness for current happiness. I uh, 
think that what you had to go through had to be terrible. And, you know, I have been thankfully very healthy, but I also know that um, if I didn't have my health, I don't know what I'd be like because it's a huge part of my being is being able to do things, being healthy, being right. Well, and active. Yeah. And I haven't shared much about my cancer history or none, I think on this group. So I don't know how many people who are listening to this know about it, which I am totally open about and I can make it the point of another thing, but figuring out, um, that for me really did probably reprioritize a lot of things and help me go like, Hey, if I'm going to rebuild this ability, I'm going to try to build it in ways that are better. And, and I'm in it for the long haul so Mm -hmm. that, um, because it, you know, it, it could be your own illness or it could be somebody close to you that makes you see how, you know, how fragile life can be. Yes, it is. And on some level, while emergency medicine can take that from you in those conflicts and why do people do this to each other or why did that person make such a series of choices, um, it, there's a few other careers where you can be, say literally i'm fortunate to see how more the morality that exists in life if i'm showing up and i don't want to minimize other careers but if i show up at an office every day and you know churn out new sales forecasts and things like that you may just not it's you can encapsulate your life in a way that i don't think it's possible to do in emergency medicine Mm -hmm. you you are dealing with the raw wave of humanity breaking yes. upon yes. the world. Right. And it's hard for that not to have, well, if you don't have healthy ways of rebuilding yourself, it's hard to do it without some way of rebuilding yourself. And there are unhealthy ways to do it, yes. at least for a short term. Yes, there are. And many turn to those unhealthy yeah. ways. Do you um, envision emergency medicine or medicine general as part of your retirement? Or are you going to be looking back on your medical career you're talking about license and yes right so again we're moving out of state which would mean having to get licensed now i'm boarded in for another (laughs) seven years yeah um but uh no so you're gonna fly back and do esol shifts (laughs) <laughs> is that what i heard you say no i don't think that's it um (laughs) but uh so I could change my mind, but I, I've had this huge interest in um, animal rights Yeah, that I have kept kind of downplayed here because, uh, first of all, Minnesota is not really an animal rights state. It's a hunting state. And secondly, uh, most people in medicine are focused on humans and not so much animals. Uh-huh. So I have not uh, made a big deal of it ever, but I really am interested in making a big deal of it yeah where would you um are there any particular organizations like just in terms of using this forum as a way of spreading some of the words are there particular groups that you feel like or um maybe even if there's a particular something i can share as a link and all these well, yes, show so, notes and everything that i can put in there that you would advocate for. yes so um I uh, am a member of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. We have protested hospitals in the Twin Cities that continue to use animals for uh, teaching purposes. Um, uh, 
in uh, labs and things like that. So yeah. again, I know that this is not something that many physicians support entirely. Uh, but as we get into SIM being better, cadaver labs, actually more appropriate for humans, mm -hmm. not some animal that doesn't really, other than the fact that it bleeds and can die, it doesn't really resemble a human too mm -hmm. much. So yes, I've been involved in that. I have protested different groups. I've written many letters. I've been involved in that. Yeah. But uh, again, I haven't made a big deal of it to my group because I don't think the group is very interested. You don't think so? No. Uh-uh. Yeah. And I'm sure you've probably felt the waters out on one-to-one -one level and learned. Yes. And for and, which you've built that up. I mean, we assessment. have people that are strongly into animal research. Right. And uh, we have some people that think that we need to get these animal um, labs Sim, uh, back. Right. Procedural education. Right. Right. Yeah. So, no, I know where I stand. And again, I wasn't using it to try to provoke everybody. But I think that if I move out of this state into another state, nobody knows me. I can start up whatever I want. Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's true. And I think that, um, I guess, um, you're envisioning a continuation of your life with a different hat on, on some level, yes, right? Exactly. And I think you have made choices in your life that have allowed you to, whether it's a second career or just a very active avocation or something, you're in a position to do that, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. And uh, so. you're going to be closer to family, I think I heard too. Yes. Is that right? So that's part of part, family. Part of family. And then, um, well, and I think that's kind of where a lot of us try to figure out like what kind of. Um, what do you want to do after retirement kind of well, thing? Well, or stay? when to pick retirement or what do you call, is retirement a form of early retirement burnout or is it a choice to, hey, I've got some energy that I want to position myself on a different, work mm -hmm. on a different project or mm -hmm. different thing. And I think in medicine, if you look at a business world, people are flipping jobs all the time and right. they change. And I was in marketing, now I'm in finance and it's much different in medicine, even though you can pick like we talked about, within emergency medicine, you could do all kinds of different things. It's still hard to just leave medicine for three years and then come back from a, just the pure credentialing and due diligence and all the things that the chain of trust that you have to build. To be yeah, I think that physician. you're going to have to stay up with as fast as things are going. Right. We've had literature. a remarkably stable group here without people leaving a lot until they actually retire. But then we've had a group that's retired and gone on to do the methadone clinics right. and things like that, which I have no interest in yeah. at all. Um, but, uh, and you know, medicine, I still think is hugely fascinating. But I will say that I don't mind sitting there listening to some of these fascinating cases people see and not sorry that I don't have to be the one dealing with all the paperwork and all the other stuff. So yeah. you can listen to cases and love it, but the day-to-day -day grunt work of working in the ER uh, is okay for me to say goodbye so, to. Yeah. Well, that's a... But uh, you've got to decide when you are emotionally ready, if you're moving because of uh, family changes, if um, you're financially ready, that's a big one. Healthcare insurance, big one. 
Well, and I, yeah, and I, we don't have time to go into a lot of that, but I think that's where I, you know, I know in my own life, try to make decisions that give me options around purchases and around things, because I think between loans and, or making choices on what type of job you take and how hard you plan to, that group expects you to work and, or what happens if that group is short because somebody else leaves and what does that look like for you? How does that, I think a lot of those decisions are important ones, especially early in your career, you may not quite realize the implications of some of those things. And uh, I think having you now at um, the end of at least your seeing patients career, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it's important to realize there still can be a lot more after that. There is plenty yet to do. Um, one of the things that I am glad I made the choice on, however, is the fact that I never needed to live a high lifestyle. Yeah. Um, except for the my children's education that was very expensive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I never needed to have big house, all these many yeah. things. So I didn't incur a lot of debt that now I have to continue to work because I think that it would be difficult as you age to not have the choice to retire. If you don't want to, that's fine. But to not even have the choice because you're so far in debt that you've got to keep working and now you're miserable, that that, that would be sad to me. Yeah, And I'm happy that I never needed that to feel good about myself. Well, and I think even a short-term version of that is this need to work extra shifts or something like that. If you have, if you create this scenario where you're making quite a bit of money, but you still end up having to do more Mm -hmm. and beyond because I think it, it doesn't take long months before all of a sudden you're getting, you're showing up really cranky or really, um, and then all of a sudden you're making short-sighted decisions on a particular patient and the next thing you know there's a lot of things going on that add to that stress whether it's malpractice or whether it's just a conflict with people in your group or something right no i can understand um early grads wanting to pay off uh, their debts and all but uh you've got to realize you're in this for the long haul um this is now what you're going to do day after day you don't have a month where you're on radiology or a month where you're doing um, something else. It's this. This is it for day after day after, you know, for the rest of your life. You don't have these breaks of other kinds of stuff. So you don't want to burn out. It's like the tortoise and the hare story. you got to be the tortoise. You can't just burn yourself out early on. No. And I think you can can work on that debt scenario in – like if you try to live the, it's hard to go back down and, um, what's the term? Your cost of living. If you tr- if you pick lifestyle choices that put you right at the top, out of the door, it's difficult to reverse that. And you have to watch that closely because you will be making a good salary. Uh, we're no longer the top paid people of the country like the olden days, but we make good salaries and you may get some signing bonuses that are good and it is very hard to not then go buy that very expensive car that very expensive house and really show off all you've got but uh make sure that that's really 
making you feel good about yourself because you yeah. are, you know, you're going to be paying for that for a yeah, long time. And so I, uh, again, I'm glad that that isn't how I felt good about myself having yeah. to have all that. Well, on, that. on the other hand, I had a house that I could never open up and invite people over to because it was right. probably the bottom of the line house among yeah. my colleagues so you could never have everybody come well over i'm a little bit of like i haven't had dinner book there. club or journal yeah. club yeah yeah i don't have the journal club house you probably could show off your winter running gear though <laughs> <laughs> your yep. luxury item i can show that off right <laughs> well i guess my my general wrap-up question is um to either young your Children, grandchildren, people on the block, like, would you recommend medicine as a career to people that are up and coming? Only if they want it. And neither of my kids were interested in it. Yeah. So I did not push them that yeah. way. And uh, uh, if they were interested, or if a neighbor kid that you're friends with interested, would you say, yeah, there's still lots there to. I would. I am not sorry at all. I went into this career, right. and I think it will still be a good career for people. And um, so I did. When the kids were in high school, I did support students coming here yeah. and doing little internships. They had a senior internship at the high school they went to, and it wasn't my kids that wanted to come here, but uh, it was yeah. other people's kids, and they've gone on and actually gone into medicine. So yeah, yeah I still think this is a that's good a great field, but. I don't think you want to push somebody in it that doesn't want to do it and is only doing it because their parents did it or it's sort of in their heritage to have to do yeah. it. Yeah. Well, and I think there's a lot of ways in medicine, like there are a lot of career paths in this sphere, I guess I'd say, whether it's an MD or going through nursing or a PA right. or um, even in business or education supporting roles, there's plenty of ways to be involved in healthcare that if that area interests somebody that doesn't involve being in medicine. The flip side is you can also go get your MD and then not see patients at all too. Yes, you can. That's another right. world. So, right. Well, thank you again for not only spending what now looks like an hour and 32 minutes uh, with me and, but thank you for just for teaching me a lot for teaching. I know hundreds of other people about how to be an excellent physician. Thanks, Brad. That's really nice of you yeah, to say. Yeah, and I think You're I'm speaking nice on the. I appreciate, I appreciate that. Well, and I think I'm speaking for many, many people that are probably like, "Oh, wish they could give you a big hug right now on their <laughs> own heart." So, um, so thanks again, and uh, we'll wrap up from there. Great. Thanks for listening to this episode of Positively Deviant Emergency Medicine. Please consider subscribing to the podcast wherever you find your podcasts. Or you can listen on the web at positivelydeviant.audio. There you can also leave a comment, tell your colleagues, or tweet me up. It helps spread the word. You can also leave your feedback to make them better, or you can give me your guest suggestions. And here's a standard disclaimer. The thoughts and views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals alone. No one you heard here represents the organizations where they work. Now that you've heard that, let's shut it down. Until next time, thanks again for listening.